This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. For over two years, China appears to have been mostly successful at stamping out domestic COVID outbreaks. The country's lockdown responses have often been heavy-handed, but they have worked. But now that model is under severe strain. China is currently facing its largest COVID outbreak since the original one in Wuhan, and it's dominated by the extremely contagious BA2 subvariant. China's imposed vast lockdowns to stop the spread, shutting down the city of Shenzhen, population 17 million. Chinese President Xi Jinping has been making newly measured statements, saying that the lockdowns that become necessary will be conducted in such a way to minimize the economic impact. But is that even possible while maintaining a COVID zero approach? And what will happen if the lockdown strategies fail? The impacts could be vast on health in China and on the global economy. This crisis also comes at a time when China faces pre-existing economic problems, including a massive real estate bubble. And while it is roped into another global crisis, its junior partner in a global alliance, Russia, is currently waging a war of choice in Ukraine. And China is torn between its desire to support Russia and disrupt the U.S.-led world order and its desire to protect Chinese companies from U.S. sanctions and from the global turmoil the war is causing. So what will China do about all of this, and what will its actions mean for the United States, for our economy, and for our geopolitical goals? To talk about that, Patrick Chovanec is my guest this week. Patrick is an economic advisor with the firm Silvercrest Asset Management in New York. For much of his career, he's advised companies, governments, officials, and private sector investors in the Chinese economy. Patrick taught at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, and he used to teach at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Patrick, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Good to be with you. Uh, before we talk about what's happening with COVID in China right now, I want to talk about the last two years, because when, when we talk in the United States about China largely having had success stopping COVID outbreaks, one of the first things I usually hear is from people who say, you know, I don't trust Chinese data. I don't believe the numbers about how many cases, how many deaths there have been in China. I, I, I want to know your take on that. I mean, I, I sort of look at this and assume that if China had sort of similar levels of sickness and death that you saw in the United States or in Western Europe, there would have been no way to conceal that, that whatever we think about the actual numbers, it has to be broadly true that China's largely kept COVID out for the last two years. Is that your view? I think your take is accurate. You know, I don't really believe the numbers myself, but what I believe is the evidence of of the impact that it has seemed to have. You know, there was a point where uh, they were building massive field hospitals, they were locking down cities, and throughout the, the next two years, um, there have been periodic lockdowns when they detected a few cases. They seemingly have been able to contain it up to this point. You know, that's just based on the evidence of our eyes and what we would expect to see if that didn't work. So I don't think that you need to rely on official numbers to necessarily, you know, or even accept China's narrative to say that, yes, they, they seem to have uh, been able through lockdowns to manage and contain this disease in a way that other countries around the world have struggled with. And so what we're seeing in a lot of countries that were very successful at keeping COVID out is that that's, that's breaking down, either because of the increased uh, transmissibility of Omicron and then the BA2 subvariant of Omicron, um, and also because of the necessity of reopening some of these countries that have been essentially shut for two years to the, to the outside world. You have to start letting people in again. You're going to end up with COVID. And so we're seeing that in a lot of places. We're seeing places like South Korea that are having you know huge upticks in the number of COVID COVID cases, basically saying, you know, we, we can't do COVID zero 
forever. What is China doing on that regard? Because it doesn't look like they've they've moved to that point yet. Their official position still seems to be that we're going to keep COVID out. We do have these new comments from Xi about trying to take a sort of balancing approach. It, it seems to me like sort of, you know, eventually if you're going to let it in, it's going to have to run sort of rampant through through the country. Am I is there an option here for China that I'm missing? I think what you what you highlight is the fact that what made sense back in 2020 is not necessarily what makes sense now in 2022. The virus has changed. There are new variants. And we have a vaccine now, uh, at least in the West, that is effective at uh, mitigating the effects of the virus. So what was very successful for China back in 2020 was the ability to contain this disease that we didn't know that much about through very draconian measures. On the other hand, the United States was very effective at developing a vaccine, somewhat effective at getting it out there, and at least it was readily available to anybody who was willing to take it. And China, on the other hand, we don't know. The vaccines that China had developed don't seem to be as effective you know, at combating the disease as the ones that we have in the West. And so they are reliant still on this containment. And the problem is, is that the variants that have developed are much more contagious. And so containment, which might have worked against the original virus, doesn't necessarily work as well against the new variants. And that's the dilemma that they're in right now, is that they can't really say, okay, you know what? Basically, in the United States, we said, all right, we really can't control this virus anymore, especially given the, the new variants that are far more contagious. So we just have to fall back to the fact that people are, uh, a lot of people are vaccinated and that protects them. China's not in a position to do that. And that's a real dilemma for them. And so China's not in the position to do that. You, you mentioned that at least in, in the West, we have these highly effective vaccines. The mRNA vaccines from, from Pfizer and Moderna seem to work really well. Those are not the vaccines they have in China. They have locally developed vaccines that, that look somewhat less effective. And then there's also this question of who's vaccinated in China. Now, the, the official statistics look a little bit strange to me in that the claim is that there's a very high vaccine rate for people aged between 70 and 79, but that the vaccine rate for people 80 and over is maybe only 50%. The numbers in Hong Kong, uh, where I think we, you know, I think we can trust a little bit more that we have good insight into the vaccination numbers in Hong Kong than in mainland China. They look even worse than that for older residents. That basically, there's been a lot of vaccine hesitancy, specifically focused on elderly people who are at the greatest risk of COVID. And so, I guess the the question is, what what is your sense of how immunologically prepared China is for this outbreak? Do, I mean, do you, do you believe those vaccine numbers that a 80% of the Chinese population has been vaccinated, and and if it's with the Chinese vaccines, how, how much good does that do? So if we look at Hong Kong, you know, my sense is that from, from people I've talked to is that there was some reluctance to take the Chinese vaccine, which was readily available, and hold off and wait to maybe get the Western vaccine. And so there was some, there was some ambivalence in Hong Kong uh, among doctors, among older people who were most vulnerable to what they should actually do. And the result was that there's, they ended up with a very low vaccination rate for for the most vulnerable population. And now that containment measures aren't necessarily as effective as they were in the past against previous variants, they're going to hit very, very hard. In China, in the mainland, it's a little bit more of a black box. I mean, all we have are the numbers that they give us. Presumably, it's all the domestic manufactured vaccines. And um, we don't really know. I mean, I say it seems like it's less effective. We, we don't really know that. All that we do know is that the containment measures are likely to be less effective against these new variants. And that leaves them with a big question mark as to how much they can go along 
and kind of survive it like the West did, like the United States did, just on vaccines alone. And you know, there's a there's a big question mark there, which is okay. So why don't they just import the more effective vaccines, right? But but, right. but that becomes a political question of, you know, they would then have to admit that uh, their vaccines are less effective, that you know they need help from the West. I, I you know. We don't really know the calculation that goes into that, but there seems to be a reluctance to go down that path in China. So what what are we going to see in China, in your view, over the next six months to a year? The, are we just going to see repeated lockdowns of the sort that you saw in Shenzhen? I, I assume that's not going to work in the medium term, that you will just get in, you know, epidemic COVID in China. So plan A is to do what they did in 2020, which was um, to have, you know, huge lockdowns as draconian as need be. And I'm not sure if there is a plan B. And that's the problem. So then the subsequent question becomes, what does China look like if you have COVID raging in a you know, relatively uncontrolled way as it has in the West? Well, so what does China look like in that <laughs> circumstance? I mean, China's, I mean, it looks like Hong Kong. And that's the problem. I think that's what people are worried about right now. If we want to look at the you know the economics of this, there are a couple of outflows from China, and people have given various reasons why. Some say yeah, it's because you know she has gotten too close to Putin, and people are worried about the effect of sanctions. There, are, you mean capital outflows just over the last few weeks? Yes, yeah, just over the past quarter or so. There's this kind of general view that China has become less attractive to investors or more risky. I tend to think that a lot of it is this this concern about COVID and and what it could do. You know, the the big fear in 2020 was not that COVID would run rampant all over the world. That was, you know, in Jan- if we were sitting here in January or February 2020, we wouldn't be talking about, you know, a million dead in the United States. What we would be talking about was how is the world going to endure a huge epidemic in China and the economic effect that that would have in China on the rest of the world. And two years later, we may end up having that conversation. That that fear might be realized after a whole bunch of things that happen in the meantime, because now China is facing that prospect. So, what does this make your job like right now? I mean, this is these are the sorts of questions people come to ask you, right? Yes, uh, and the biggest problem with China these days is that it has become increasingly a black box. We only, you know, you say, okay, you're supposed to be the China observer. <laughs> I haven't, you know, nobody's been able to go to China for two years. Unless they were willing to go through two, three, four weeks of lockdown quarantine. And, and actually, you know, this isn't home quarantine. This is quarantine in a place where they shove your tray of food under the door. Um, <laughs> you know, even people I know who are in Hong Kong who watch, who rely on watching the Chinese economy very closely have not been able to go to the mainland for two years. And haven't really been able to travel outside of Hong Kong very easily either because they face the same kind of constraints when they get back. You know, China is more isolated in the sense of being able to go there, see things for yourself than it's been in my lifetime. It's more difficult and it's more onerous than it was in 1986 when I went for the very first time. Wow. 
I'm, I'm, and so I ask that about that in part because as as observers in the U.S. look at what's going on in China, I mean, obviously one concern people have if they have investments in China is what this is going to mean for the Chinese economy. But I think from a, from a political perspective, there's this narrative about China that basically the the political strength and stability of the Communist Party of Xi Jinping is basically this trade that you're going to have rising living standards every year. And China has had an impressive record of, of economic growth for decades, moving up toward being a middle-income country instead of a poor country. And that, that basically, that's what creates the, the popular support and the stability that keeps the government in place there. And so you have this COVID threat that's a threat to life. It's also a big threat to the economy. And then you have some pre-existing economic problems, a major property bubble I think, I, I, I don't know if you'd agree with this characterization, sort of a sense that you're hitting the limits of the, co- of the command economy model in China, that as their, as their income gets higher and the, and the economy gets more complex, the, the role that the government plays in directing investment is just becoming less sustainable. So is this, is this a big threat politically to Xi and to the Communist Party there, that basically you have a number of these things coming to a head that could conceivably push China into recession at the same time that it has this, this isolation you describe? So we, we can get back to the issue of China's broader economic model and the changes that it needs to make or is trying to make in, in a second, because that's a different conversation. But the immediate issue that you raise about politics, you know, it's interesting if we go back again to 2020, there's sort of an interesting thing that almost happened there, which is in the first few months when China seemed to be the most affected country in the world, and it was really an open question about whether China could contain the virus or not within its own country. Things looked grim for Xi politically. He was at risk. There were a lot of people who felt that he had mishandled the trade war, that it had gone places that it didn't need to go. There was a sense that they had mishandled this like SARS very early on, and this, you know, that China was going to really pay a very serious price for that, um, for COVID. And there were a lot of people kind of quietly questioning his leadership. You mean people internally in the country? Yes. How do I know this? I know this because they they crack down very severely in terms of censorship on the response to COVID, and there were criticisms out there, you know, on on WeChat and whatnot. And it didn't take very much for you to get you know your entire WeChat account canceled, disappeared because you know you had brought up some fact that was inconvenient to the overall narrative of we're winning against COVID. They did somehow get their act together against COVID. And at the same time that things got better in China, things got worse abroad. And so what had been a threat to Xi then became kind of a talking point. You know, he was he was able to say, oh, look, you know, we have it under control here. Look at how it's raging in Europe and the United States. Aren't you really glad that you don't live there? Aren't you glad that you live in a Chinese system that protected you and did all the things necessary to protect you? And so for two years, he was kind of able to ride on that. And a lot of, you know, there, there were a lot of other difficulties, but at the end of the day, you know, he was able to ride that narrative. Now we're back to where we were, which is maybe China's more vulnerable than it has been for the past few years, and maybe that disruption is coming. And so it does raise, you know, a, a, another potential threat to Xi. What does political risk look like for him? I mean, obviously, it's not a democracy. What are, what are the sort of mechanisms whereby that discontent, whether with the public or certain elites, uh, can end up undermining the, the power that he can wield? It's very difficult to say in China because there are, you know, there's, there's no opposition. There's no organized opposition in any way, shape, or form. You know, we, we know what opposition looked like in Hong Kong. COVID measures were used to prevent any kind of continued protest and were used to consolidate Beijing's effective use of power within within that uh, uh, that territory. 
not everyone in China is happy, and I'm talking about even within the party, with the direction that she is taking the country, much more assertive on um, nationalism in the region, much more uh, friendlier relationships with Russia, with North Korea, but more importantly, in the economy, much more state control and uh, a lot less of the market reform that had dominated the previous you know, several decades of, of China and, and a much more fractious relationship with the West, which, which actually, you know, that is the, uh, those ties, those economic relationships with the West is what brought China out of poverty and into prosperity. So there's not, there are a lot of people who aren't necessarily very happy with the direction that she's taken. However, they've not been in a position to do anything about it because he's been in such command. The moment that he stumbles, you know, the mo- is the moment that you have people who potentially would want to push him out of that commanding position. You mentioned the relationship with with Russia. And so we've obviously the the dominant news event of the last several weeks has been Russia's war in Ukraine. And you have this partnership that's been emerging between Russia and China, both of which have an interest in disrupting the U.S.-led global order. How how does China look at what Russia is up to right now? I assume that, you know, Russia invades Ukraine was was not at the top of China's agenda for this year. How do they how, how are they looking at this war? So China's grown closer to Russia over the past decade or so, and there are two main reasons why. The first really predates Xi Jinping, and it has to do with access to resources. So China knows that it is increasingly dependent on sea lanes in order to get access to the resources to drive its economy, particularly oil, and that those sea lanes are very vulnerable to U.S. naval interdiction in the case of any kind of conflict with the United States. They don't necessarily have to see that conflict on the horizon to be concerned about that as a strategic vulnerability. And so for a long time now, they've tried to open up other ways, you know, not relying on the sea, relying on overland routes to get access to resources. The obvious solution there is Russia and pipelines from Russia. That has developed, that relationship has developed. It hasn't eliminated the vulnerability that exists, but it has been mitigated somewhat. And, and so that relationship uh, in terms of resources is important to China. The second thing is uh, color revolutions. You know, Putin and Xi Jinping look around the world and they see unrest, whether it be in the uh, popular unrest, whether it be in Iran, whether it be in the Arab Spring, whether it be in Ukraine, Georgia, other countries, things that we've called color revolutions, um, successful or not. And they see the hand of the United States against authoritarian states just like their own. And they see themselves as next on the list. And so that has created a kind of kinship of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and therefore Russia and China gravitate together in in opposing that. And it's interesting. I mean, if you really, one of the key moments here was Libya and um, the fact that both China and Russia did not veto the measure to have a no-fly zone over Libya, which ultimately toppled Gaddafi and led to his death. And I think neither of them really agreed with, knew that that's what they were signing on to and didn't like the outcome. And that's why then you saw with Syria a very different kind of response from both countries, much more active from Russia, but, but certainly you know, China was not going to sign on to any kind of, of UN measures against Assad. So there's been kind of a, a growing alignment of 
interests between Russia and China to oppose the U.S. as a, as a global hegemon. Well, so I was going to ask how Ukraine fits into that. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, there's been a lot of discussion about how this doesn't necessarily look like it was strategically smart for Russia itself, for its own interests. Does Russia invading Ukraine, does that serve China's interest of defending authoritarian governments against the possibility of Western-supported revolution? So China doesn't care about Ukraine one way or the other. They would love to have Russia take down NATO and the West and the U.S. a notch. They'd love for that outcome to take place at no risk to themselves, but they don't particularly care about the outcome. What they do have to worry about, though, is that in sort of rooting for Putin to take down the U.S. a notch, they don't want to put any of their broader interests at risk because I mentioned all those reasons why China has gravitated towards Russia. But at the end of the day, China is also the second largest economy in the world, and it has a huge economic relationship with the United States and with Europe. And that's the basis on which, you know, uh, it can claim to be a world power or a rising world power. It doesn't want to put those things at risk for Russia. And, you know, Russia has been willing to subordinate a lot of its interests for the China relationship. You know, One Belt, One Road uh, involves China expanding its economic influence in Central Asia, which Russia sees as its own sort of political backyard, but it's willing to, it's been willing to turn a blind eye to that for the sake of the support of China. China, on the other hand, you know, Russia would absolutely hope that China is going to come in and be the savior here, that it's going to allow it to get around the sanctions, that it's going to supply it with weapons, it's going to do all sorts of things. You know, China has a lot of other things to, to uh, weigh against that, that if it goes all in for Russia, it threatens the the other kind of relationships that are much more important to it in a whole bunch of different ways. And, you know, that's why I think you see some of this kind of crosstalk out of China. It's very ambivalent. It's it's one day they're sort of it's saying been confusing. It is confu it's confusing because Chinese objectives are confused. They are in conflict and they just sort of want this to go away. They would have loved for Russia to, I don't know whether, you know, there's this debate about whether Xi Jinping knew that, that he was actually going to invade or not. Putting that aside, I think that if Russia had marched into Kiev on, on day three, and this was a fait accompli and the world just had to deal with it, then I think China would have said, good job, Russia. You know, you, you, you showed the West <laughs> that, that we, you know, we, the authoritarian countries of the world won't get kicked around. But it hasn't turned out that way. It's turned into this, this slogging match in which Russia may well lose. China has to kind of walk a, a line here. And you know, they've, they've said, this is neutrality. We're neutrals. We're going to do the things that neutrals do, which is we're going to continue to you know, have commerce with that country. But I don't think that I, – I think they're going to be very careful about things that they do. You know, they, they may aid Russia, but they have to keep it really on the down low because uh, – I don't think they want to be seen as party to a conflict that Russia is potentially losing. And like I say, if Russia was winning, it might be a very different story. But Russia is at the very least not winning. And uh, it's much more than China ever thought it was signing up for in terms of a confrontation with the West over, over something that is really not material to its own interests. Do we have any opportunities to try to drive a wedge between Russia and China here? I mean, obviously, that was that was a key uh, strategic element during the Cold War 
in the 1970s to exploit uh, a rift between the Soviet Union and communist China. Are there are there disalignments of, of Russian and Chinese interests that create opportunities for us right now to try to solve our problems in either of those relationships? I think the biggest wedge that's being driven between Russia and China right now is that Russia's losing. And that, you know, it's one thing to back a winner and it's another thing to back a loser. But so uh, can you elaborate on, on, is that just like that it's embarrassing to lose a war or there's something more? It's that if if Russia was in a situation of projecting strength and projecting effective defiance of the West, that that's more useful to China than a Russia that's bogged down um, in a war that everyone expected it to win, that is completely economically isolated in a way that provides a potential map for how the West might respond to, you know, Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Now, there's a whole lot of differences, right? A whole lot of differences. And I don't want to draw a direct parallel, but the reality is that I don't think that China expected or Russia expected quite the level of economic sanctions. and resp- I mean, We're not even talking about sanctions. We're talking about effectively economic warfare. Um, when we talk about, you know, trying to constrain um, the central bank in Russia and its ability to use its its uh, reserves and things like that. I mean, this is a kind of level of economic warfare that we haven't seen since really World War II in, in an open conflict. And so I don't think that China, I think China expected that if it were to do something in Taiwan, that the response would be something more like uh, what took place when Russia seized Crimea. Um, which was there was some sanctions, you know, but it wasn't the end of the world. And there was a lot of disagreement in the West about how exactly how far to go. And if that had been the response to the invasion of Ukraine, I think that would have been very affirmative of China's position in the world and, and Xi's, you know, strategy. This hasn't affirmed that. This is this has really put a big question mark over how the West wh- whether the West is really as weak and is irresolute and ready to crumble as that narrative that sort of sustained this Russia-China relationship uh, asserted. I, I've seen a lot of people draw that parallel with with China and Taiwan that you describe. And, and, and you, you talk about being reluctant to draw a direct parallel. Are there reasons to think that China is better positioned than Russia would be in, in a campaign like this? I mean, I think that, you know, the Chinese army, for example, is maybe more competent than than the Russian army or the China has a larger and more diversified economy than Russia does, might be in a better position to stand up in the face of sanctions. Imposing sort of similar sanctions to what we imposed on Russia, I assume, would be a lot more damaging to the U.S. economy if we tried to do it to China because our trade relationship with China is so much deeper. So is this one of the sort of silver linings I've seen people talk about at the events of the last few weeks is that this seems like something that might cause the Chinese to hesitate about an effort to invade Taiwan. But I'm, I sort of wonder about some of those things about whether China might have good reason to believe that it's better positioned than Russia has been in this sort of hapless misadventure they're undertaking. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of differences in just the practicalities of the situations. There were some people who seemed to talk as though, well, if we don't stand up to Russia and Ukraine, then you know the next very next day, Russia, the China is going to invade Taiwan because they've got a green light. You know, China has its own strategy, its own priorities, its own timeline, and that's very important. Its own timeline when it comes to what it wants to do with Taiwan, and there are some very significant differences. First of all, we're talking about you know invading an island as opposed to crossing the steppe. Taiwan's nowhere near as large as Ukraine physically, but it's also economically much more plugged into uh, the rest of the world in terms of supply chains. Economic warfare against China would be of a whole different order. So the similarity that does exist is the question of the resolve of the West. 
mm-hmm. because I do think that there has you know there has been this thought in Russia, in China, and you could even go back to Japan in you know nineteen forty, saying that the West is a paper tiger. Yes, they have the means to fight, but you know they don't have the will. And I think Putin, a lot of Putin's uh, strategy here was that you know the West would fail, and I think that there are some in China who have the same view about what the reaction would be to a aggression towards Taiwan. And so that's where there is, you know, it is important, uh, an important connection between the two, because, you know, we're seeing right now that that narrative challenged, uh, I think, significantly. I mean, even even despite the fact that the that the West has not gone to war for Ukraine, um, it's sort of all but. they've done all but that. Right. right. And, and in a way that I think caught a lot of people, even the West, by surprise. So as China faces these simultaneous challenges with the likely rise of COVID over the next months or year, the existing economic challenges with property bubbles, and and then also the, the issues created by Russia's war, I want to talk a little bit about our options in the China relationship. And I, I guess my first question is, do we want China to go into a recession? Is that a positive event for us because it, it weakens Xi, or is it a negative event for us because it has downdrafts for the global economy, makes, maybe makes China a little bit more panicky? How do, how do we feel about the Chinese economic outlook as the U.S.? That's a very interesting question that you raised. And actually, um, about two years ago, I raised the same question at a uh, gathering of uh, economists talking about China. I said, you know, in the past, we would have said that, that our goal as the U.S., is to prevent an economic meltdown in China and mitigate the risks of that. So we, we want them to reform. We want them to undertake the right reforms, open up their economy in ways that we've been asking them to for, for many years. If undertaking those reforms involves some risk, we want to try to mitigate those risks for them because it's the direction that we want China to go in. I said, that's that has been the case. But is our goal now to, to maximize economic pain in China, want them to stumble, want to exacerbate any kind of risk that takes place in their economy. So I posed that and people quietly sort of mumbled. But afterwards, somebody came (laughs) up to me and said, well, you know what the answer is. The answer is the latter now. The answer is that we, we want economic problems in China. Yes. And I said, well, that's very, very important to know because that represents a very significant shift in our priorities. And it raises all kinds of questions about, you know, are we willing to to deal with the consequences of what we wish for? You know, I'm still of the mind that, uh, well, let me put it this way. A lot of it depends on China. You know, it's not, we can't tell China what direction to go in. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't tell them to reform in 1978. Uh, we didn't tell Xi Jinping what to do in terms of, of you know, the economy um, and the direction he wants to take it. We don't control China. There's no who lost China in this equation. We're not in a position to lose China. China is only in a position to lose itself in that sense, make decisions that are, that are bad for it. That said, how do we respond? I mean, okay, well, maybe this requires talking a little bit more about those underlying economic issues that we've sort of alluded to, right? Right. So we've had COVID, we've had this war in Ukraine, all these things that have dominated headlines. Meanwhile, Xi Jinping came into office in 2012, and, and the first thing that he came out with about a year later was this big document called the Third Plenum Document that listed a whole bunch of market-oriented economic reforms that he said were long overdue, that should have been done years ago, that they needed to do. And there was a lot of 
optimism about, okay, he's the reformer who can get all this stuff through. He's going to shove it through. And that all of this crackdown was really about seizing the control that was necessary to shove through these these measures. The crackdown being the various corruption. Corruption campaign, consolidating power behind Xi Jinping as you know, kind of optimal leader. But the argument was from people who were still optimistic about where, where she was taking this was that he needed to consolidate all this power so that he could t- turn around and do the things that Hu Jintao was unable to do in terms of repositioning the Chinese economy for the 21st century and for the next stage of growth. The problem is that almost none of those things have happened. And why have none of those things happened is because the key line in the third plenum document was the market will be decisive. The problem is that if the market is decisive, the Communist Party isn't. Right. And we and the first time that we really saw that was with the stock market bubble that took place several years ago. And when Xi Jinping intervened very heavy-handedly to make sure that the stock market would not fall below a certain level and that the party was going to determine the outcome, not the market. And ever since then, basically, they've essentially given up on all of those reforms, which they themselves said was overdue. This isn't, you know, when I bring this up, people say, oh, you know, you're a Western economist. You're just projecting your own ideas onto what China should do. And they've got their own set of priorities. No, this is what China's current leadership said was long overdue and must be done. And and just to play out why that would be important, it's basically, I mean, like the reason you have a stock market in theory or the, is that you want actors in the market to be allocating capital where it will produce the highest returns and that that is supposed to, in general, produce useful investments that produce useful products and services and cause the economy and standards of living to grow. And obviously that doesn't always work perfectly, but that that's better than having some political entity basically deciding what money is and isn't going to be spent on. And the, and the stock market that you have in mainland China is like kind of a Potemkin stock market where like the moves, the amount that it can move is managed in certain ways. It's not really sending the market signal that you're supposed to get, and more broadly, the, the the environment for business investment is not just purely based on people trying to put their money where they think it's going to produce the largest returns, which is the way that system is supposed to work in capitalist society. Yeah, and I think the stock market is just sort of the you know the tip of the iceberg. That you know we're talking about a, a lending and credit system in China in which massive amounts of resources are are targeted in different ways is driven mainly by politics and perception of political risk than by real economic risk. And what I mean by that is when you look at investment, when you're, when you're an average Chinese person and looking to put your money somewhere uh, and what kind of investment, and you're presented with an investment product that says we're going to earn 20% return, you don't ask the question, well, what's it going into? And is that actually a good investment? And is it going to succeed in <laughs> generating those returns? What you're asking is, is the entity that's offering this, you know, the Bank of China or whatever, if they don't make this money, is the government just going to have to step in and, you know, make it up? And therefore, I'm I'm fine with giving you my money because I'm going to get that twenty percent, or at least I'm going to get my money back because this is just too politically problematic for anybody to admit that it, that it went somewhere bad. If that's pervasive throughout the economy, right? Then you're not able to take the economy up to the next level. You know, look back 20, 30 years ago. I mean, China's economic challenge was simply opening up you know, its economy to trade and moving people from the farm into the city and having them in factories and and producing things that, you know, the rest of the world valued. And at that time, I mean, you can throw a lot of stuff up against the wall and just see if it sticks. And if half of it doesn't stick, that's fine because the productivity gains are so huge that you're, you end up winning anyway. 
when you become a wealthier country and when you reach, you know, kind of a middle income level of uh, quality of life, things like efficient allocation of capital start to matter a lot more than they might have when there were these, you know, low hanging fruit to be picked. So there, there's not as much low hanging fruit to be picked in the Chinese economy. And that means that that uh, the way forward is requires the kind of economic uh, uh, reforms that they were talking about at the beginning of Xi Jinping's rule. Can you just explain concretely why this is? Because, I mean, the, the images that we see out, out of this China economy story that are the most striking are all of these empty apartment towers. Is that a direct result of what you're describing there, the sort of the political allocation of capital? Why does this dysfunctional system turn specifically into the building of many homes that get sold to, to individual Chinese investors that there just isn't demand for? Is that a failure of this sort of like top-down economy thing? Uh, why specifically property? I think, first of all, because it was genuinely a thing that people desired to own when it opened up around 2000. And so it was it was an attractive sort of thing to put your money into. But there aren't that many choices about where you can put your money in China. Uh, you know, the capital account isn't open. Which, which means you can't take your money and invest it abroad. That's right. They basically have the option of putting it in the bank, uh, putting it in the stock market, which is sort of like a casino. And putting it, um, putting it into property, and property has been a very attractive place. Now, what you have tended to see over the past couple of years is it's kind of like a balloon, where you know if you put pressure on one end, the other end, you know, all the air goes to the other end. So, what'll happen is when they put pressure on property, the stock market will start to boom, and when they put pressure on the stock market, the property market will boom. The financial bubble is interesting to watch, but the underlying problem is the misallocation of resources. That there are all kinds of areas of the Chinese economy where there are real productivity gains to be made. I mean, you know, whether it's um, logistics or or uh, healthcare or consumer branded goods or all sorts of things for a domestically driven economy, not an export driven economy, but a domestic man driven economy where. This investment could be flowing, but it's not because it's seen as politically more secure to put it in places that you know, have always made money and are too big to fail. So let's turn then to what happens if that all really does start going to hell domestically, if you do see a recession in China. You said we may want that from a U.S. perspective, but we have to be prepared to bear the cost. What is that cost? What are the real risks to the United States from from economic turmoil in China? So, I mean, the immediate risk to the United States that we potentially face right now is if there are very serious lockdowns in China and you know, parts of the Chinese economy don't function that there could be supply shortages of all sorts of things because China plays a key role in, in global supply chains. I'll give you an example of one area. China provides almost all of the basic chemicals for the rest of the world that go into pharmaceuticals, that go into all sorts of things. So, you know, whether you're talking about what would sanctions against China look like in the case of a conflict or whether you're talking about what the outcome of shutdowns in China would look like, this is all the stuff that people were talking about in early 2020 because they thought that, that was really going to be the impact of COVID. Turned out not to be, but you know now we're back in a position where we have to think very hard about what that would be. And we're in an environment right now, as opposed to 2020, where we're already seeing shortages and and supply chain pressures and and price pressures from that. You know, we're already in an inflationary environment as a result of of supply being insufficient to meet post COVID demand, and so. 
The concern would be that that would fuel the fire of inflation, that there are even more supply constraints that we would be contending with in the in the year ahead. That sounds really bad for yeah, the U.S. right now, and especially sounds really bad politically for the president, who's like number one domestic political challenge is inflation. That feels like it should be a point of leverage for China right now. I guess they, I don't know if they can demand anything from us because we we can't prevent them from needing to lock down. What it shows is the is the interrelationship that still exists. I mean, we could talk all we want about decoupling, right. but the but the reality is that it's very hard to remove the second largest economy in the world from you know the picture entirely and say that anything that happens there, particularly bad things that happen there, just won't have a bad effect on us. And this is why I really question and did question that that statement that we want a recession there has been politically in dc a view that has evolved that you know whatever's good for china must be bad for us and whatever is bad for china must be good for us because of the geopolitical rivalry between and you know there are there's certain rationale for thinking that way in the sense that you know china's been very assertive it definitely has interests that conflict with the United States. But back in 2008 if we went back to the 2008 crisis there was a broad recognition in China and the United States, that it was not a zero-sum game, that what was bad for the United States could also be very bad for China. And there was this story that Hank Paulson tells in 2008 of, of the Russians approaching the Chinese at some critical point in the crisis and saying, hey, let's stick together and dump U.S. securities and that'll really sock it to the <laughs> U.S. And, and apparently the Chinese came to the U.S. and said, the Russians are asking us to do this, and we have absolutely no interest in doing this because it would only hurt ourselves. So one of the most striking things to me about watching the COVID crisis unfold over the past two years is how different the response has been from 2008. In 2008, you know, very different kind of crisis, but there was a sense that we're, we're all in the same boat and we better not shoot holes in the bottom of it. In 2020, there was almost no coordination about vaccines, about responses about it was every country for itself and there were people you know cabinet officials in the united states who came out commerce department secretary came out and said you know this crisis in china is going to be good for the u.s economy didn't work out that way but there was that thinking right that what's bad for china is probably going to be good for us and and vice versa so i only throw that out there to say that there's this very dominant zero-sum thinking and I understand where it comes from. I understand the direction that China's taken under Xi Jinping has been very, um, very concerning. But the reality is that we still exist in a global economy in which things that happen in China matter to us and that things that are bad that happen in China can be bad for us as well. So I got my my last question then is you know I certainly that that description makes sense of how Chinese shutdowns that screw up global supply chains are bad for China bad for us at the same time. The longer range issues that that you were about to get at there before I cut you off about you know if the misallocation of resources in China into investments that are not useful causes a recession causes a decline in standards of living there uh, maybe you have a property bust and you have a bunch of individuals who lose wealth because of that is that that might actually be more zero sum, right? Doesn't that, you know, that reduces the geopolitical power of China. It undermines G politically. It maybe also makes Chinese exports cheaper because you have Chinese companies have to reorient toward export businesses if you have a decline in domestic demand. It seems like some of the outcomes of that could actually look quite good for the United States. Uh, basically, a demand-driven crisis in China rather than a supply-side crisis. 
I think the issue is, is that it's all part and parcel to a broader question, which is what direction is China going in? And, you know, the, the old sort of reformist view, which doesn't have much purchase in either Beijing or DC these days, was that, you know, if China did these things, the, the third plenum document, the reforms that it, that it was proposing to do, that these were the very things that the United States have been asking China to do for a long time, to reorient its economy towards domestic demand, to put less pressure on, less have less reliance on export-driven growth, and th- therefore uh, a better balance between exports and imports between the United States and China and China and the rest of the world. These things could lead to a more sustainable role for China in the global economy that would relieve a lot of the the negatives that the rise of China had posed. You know, if the Chinese consumer was to become a driver of global economic growth, that that would be a positive thing for the United States and for the rest of the world and address some of the very things that led to the trade war. The problem that we have right now is that that was not the path that was taken. The path that was taken was to double down on the export-led growth model, double down on the investment-led growth model in China, to focus on, you know, state-down decision making. And so, where does that leave us? You know, the the failure of that does it undermine Xi? Does it then bring reformists back in? I mean, I could say in theory that could happen. I don't I don't have a a game plan for that how that plays out. I think that's a hope right now rather than a strategy. If the U.S. and China are in a collision course in which in which their uh, interests are completely incompatible, then are we in you know in a situation where it is truly a zero sum game? It's possible. I, I hope that's not the case, but yes, that, that's possible. But it also then implies very real costs, you know, for for the rest of the world as China goes through a period of economic turmoil. Very real costs that I think we're we're seeing a mini preview of with what we're doing with Russia right now. It's like you were seeing it's, it would be like that, but much multiply bigger. that by ten, right? Right. There are some who very much argue that well, that's just that's the way it is because China's chosen a path that is incompatible with U.S. interests and and freedom and you know the rest of it, and that that's just it's there's going to be a winner or a loser in a new Cold War, right? And and you know for for me then to say well, but maybe if there's a stumble and maybe if there's a change. Then China moves in a more positive direction. I, I admit that that's more of a hope than a than a strategy right now. And that, but I've also seen China go through you know huge one eighty degree changes when when things have not worked out. You know, in my lifetime, you know, whether it be in nineteen seventy eight when they when they began opening up and, and reforming, whether it was after nineteen eighty nine, Tiananmen Square was a key moment where China really cracked down, and there was a big questioning within the Communist Party about whether they should continue to move forward with this opening and reform. And they could have isolated themselves. They could have said, all oh, this all market reform thing has gone too far. And in 1992, Deng Xiaoping came out came out with this thing called the Southern Tour, which said, no, we still are on the course of economic reform. He, he didn't have to do that. I mean, China could have gone down a very, very different path post Tiananmen Square. So it, it ultimately is in the hands of decision makers. You know, it's in the hands of Xi Jinping or whoever might challenge Xi Jinping if he stumbles to chart a course for China that could be more zero-sum with the United States or less zero-sum. That's, that's an unwritten page on the book. Well, uh, that's uh, we covered a lot of ground. Why don't we leave it there for this week? Uh, Patrick Shavanik is an economic advisor with the firm Silvercrest Asset Management in New York. Patrick, thank you so much for speaking with me. That was very informative. Great to be with you. 
If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful Very Serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds this podcast and the newsletter. And we would like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That is mayo as in mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. 